0: Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, re A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 136, A Storm of Swords, Catelyn 1. I'm one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. We're in the storm. The storm of swords. The eye of the storm. Yes. You know, this would be exciting under like any other falsehood, but it's kind of depressing. It doesn't get better from here. I know I keep saying that, but like you guys, it does not get better from here. It hurts. It hurts me.
1: Yeah, there was kind of hope before, but now it's like all gone. Now everything's everything just starts sliding downhill, and it doesn't stop. It just accelerates.
0: (sighs) (laughs) Or downstream, you could say. Uh,
1: That's why it's called the storm of swords. You know, (laughs) the storm is building.
0: Before we run into all of that trauma, it's coming. It's coming. Uh, but before we get there, let's talk real quick about some housekeeping. You know, we just put out a really fun Patreon episode. Eliana caught this episode up, and I had a blast. We talked about Ella Enchanted, or Eliana Enchanted, depending it's on Ella the Enchanted. canon. It's Ella It's Eliana Enchanted. And you legally cannot tell me otherwise, but we talked about the book series by Gail Carson Levine, Eliana Enchanted on Patreon for all our patrons in the Stranger and Above tier, $5 and above USD tier. Uh, and that was fun. That was actually really fun to cover like something not what we're reading currently. I'm excited to do more of that. We should definitely do more of that of just like talking about other books and series.
1: Yeah, especially ones that don't leave us like broken at the end.
0: (laughs) Moms deserve happiness is what we we're do. Saying. We
1: do. And yeah, that was exciting. Super exciting. And I think I'm really happy with what we put out there and we even discussed the movie and how the movie makes me appreciate the book a lot more
0: because the movie was so bad. It was so bad. You know, but that's Game of Thrones, right? Like that's what Game of Thrones did mm. to us in a way. We were always being fashioned for this moment and Game of Thrones yeah. did that fashioning. We were forged in that fire of mm-hmm. like, movies and shows that are bad versions of the stories they replicate so really fun talking about Ella Enchanted which if you have not read it youth fiction fantasy story wonderful right I read it when I was young Eliana read it when she was young there's some spoiler alert some great talking about you know reading in the bathroom when you're pretending to be pooping as a child I think we can all relate to that that's why I'm bringing it up now so if you are into youth fiction if you haven't read it Take a quick peek. It's a quick story. It'll take you a day or two to read. And uh, right, if you let's... have read it, come by Patreon.com slash Girls Gone Canon. And that is not the only thing you can do over at our Patreon because patrons in the Thunder tier, the 10 US dollar tier and above, have access to a couple of really fun perks, right? Like, first thing, our Discord. Yes, as
1: Chloe said, patrons in our Thunder tier and above get... Access to our Discord, where once a month, we do a brunch-slash-happy hour on a weekend. And this coming September, I think it'll be on a Sunday. I don't know which one yet. We will have to figure that out. And, you know, this last one was... (laughs) congratulations themed but a lot of things happened there was a there was a strange sing-along and it was a lot of fun i would not even say strange it was
0: like the sing-along that was promised our friend jimmy wrote this amazing sing-along this amazing filk song right this fan song to the summer of catalan or the summer of 69 by brian adams and some of us have emotional ties to the song. Uh, now, now, if you were at the brunch, you have to have emotional ties yeah. to the song. We all sang it. It was a blast. We have to post that somewhere. We have to. I have to cover <laughs> oh, yeah, it. I'm the, working the... on it. But okay,
1: I can. I could draw it. I could listen to the song. I I know what song mm. it is. I've just never. I think you know.
0: It was the summer do you know of I mean? Caroline. You like hear yeah. it in, in like the no. Cultural, I don't like, know what thing. you mean. Uh, if you were at the brunch, you know that I. I disclosed a major personal fact in eighth grade, age fourteen, here in the Americas. Uh, you know, I I went a little forward and tried out for the pom pom team, and the pom pom team did "Summer of '69" by Brian Adams. I stole my parents' record of this, and by record I mean it was a, a tape. It was a cassette tape. People listen to those sometimes. And I stole that, listened to Brian Adams like crazy to try out. My best friend got in, I didn't. Very personal song to me, Eliana. So, yeah. uh, Jimmy really, our friend Jimmy chose really deeply for this cover, this filk song. And crazy things happen every brunch. We play Jackbox games, we give away free art prints and free fandom fun accessories and other things to at least three lucky winners every brunch. And the Jackbox games are always the craziest, truly. Everyone gets a little wild during those, but otherwise we're just like, I don't know, everyone's being themselves and I love that. I love Discord brunch and happy hour so much.
1: Yeah. And speaking of giveaways, if you know of any more His Dark materials, fan artists who have physical goods like physical prints... Or uh, things that they are making, please send them to us. Send us a tweet or a DM at GirlsGoneCannonCNON on Twitter or like GirlsGoneCannon at gmail.com. We are, we are on the hunt for a couple more. So let us know if yeah. any, any of them cross your radar, show up on your lethiometer.
0: And even if not just that, if you have any a song of Ice Fire yes, fan true, artists true. you're true. really digging, please send us some photos and some links to the the places that you're visiting and what you like lately. We're always looking for awesome fan art. And if they have a shop, the better, because we love to just give away some awesome art. I'm so in the process of just buying a Song of Ice and Fire fan art and covering my home with it right now. I think everyone should have that in their house.
1: Yeah, everyone should have that in their lives. Um, Hey, you know,
0: if you're not... Uh, Justin, a Song of Ice and Fire fan, but also into some other fantasy. We are covering his dark materials. Eliana was a huge fan in her younger years, and I am a huge the fan in my older that, years. Are you
1: attacking me? Am I being
0: attacked right now? <laughs> so, as I said, if you're into his dark materials, please listen to us because we have covered Northern Light slash the Golden Compass, the subtle knife. We're three episodes in on our Amber Spyglass coverage, and we've already finished the first Book of Dust, La Belle Sauvage. It's a blast. It's a great series. Eliana got me into it. I-, I have to say I am very grateful and thankful to her for getting me into this very sad fucking series. So if you want to be fucking depressed about another fucking youth fantasy series, come on over and listen to his dark materials because it's it's deep, man.
1: Yeah. It's real. But if you want to be the opposite of depressed, go listen to our Ella in
0: episode. <laughs> it's nothing but dopamine. Just like dopamine <sighs> hits left, right, dopamine, dopamine.
1: Yeah, I was just being very pleased. Well, things that please us are when we <laughs> receive emails and tweets of note. What? You know,
0: <laughs> we got an email, we got a message from one of our patrons, one of our good friends, a top... Top mind, a top contributor over at Girls Gone Cannons Discord. And honestly, no, I, I'm not being facetious, though. This is a great email. It's a great message. And Amy sent us this message. It says, as a lot of us have been discussing throughout Girls Gone Cannons Catelyn coverage, Catelyn's story is largely about her finally admitting to herself how much society sucks and it failed her as a person before and during A Song of Ice and Fire for Catelyn. A Storm of Swords is the book where a lot of these thoughts finally swim up (laughs) to the surface, building up to an explosive implosion at the Red Wedding. I think the scene in Catalan 1 where she realizes what Hoster did to Liza and her reaction demonstrates just how much she's changed from the beginning of A Game of Thrones and the tone for the rest of her story. I think Catalan at the start of A Game of Thrones would have rationalized what Hoster did. In this chapter, she does not do that. She acknowledges what he did was terrible and that it deeply affected her sister her entire life. It's interesting Catelyn doesn't herself offer words of forgiveness to Hoster because earlier in the story, she did. She expresses to him he's done nothing that needs forgiveness. But now, after this chapter, she doesn't offer that comfort, which it's easy to say to a dying man. But she does ask Liza if she will forgive him. I see this as if she's asking herself if she can forgive Hoster. Can she forgive him for what he did to Liza, for what he did to her? I don't see this entirely as Catalin offloading that responsibility. I see it as her expressing to Liza she understands her pain and is asking rhetorically whether they can forgive that society that caused all this pain. After all, she says and she thinks she wasn't expecting a reply. This beautifully connects with the end of the chapter with Edmir. Yes, Catelyn, days into finding her babies are dead, reacts poorly to Edmir, possibly preventing her from getting Sansa and Arya back even though she knows he had to do what he did. She's grieving. She's desperate. I'd argue her reaction is coming from a deeper frustration, right, that he had more freedom and control over his life than she and Liza ever did. She knows it's not his fault and loves him deeply, but we all take things out on the ones closest to us sometimes. Oh, I feel that. I'm sorry, Aliana. I love you, girl. Which is Um, possibly House Tully, in a nutshell. Our love. P.S. I think Katalin asking Liza, rather than just asking herself more directly, is an example of how she can't acknowledge how badly the system, including those that she loves, like her father, has failed her until the very end. XOXO, Gossip Amy Allison. I mean, Gossip Girl. I mean, Amy Allison.
1: You know, both of the letters that we received, and we'll get to the next one in a bit, end with XOXO, and I just want to flag that. Gossip Girl's influence. I agree, and I thank you, everyone, for doing this for us. And thank you, Amy, for this letter and for these thoughts. And, yeah, I I love this idea that you're asking the question of, can is, is Catelyn finding that she cannot forgive the society that has caused this big pain to herself and her sister? Also that, you know, she sees her brother as part of that, right? With her brother being able to have more of this freedom and control over his life, and... I think we'll find her wrestling with that question throughout the rest of the book, whether or not she can forgive this society and it ultimately ends up, right? She never even gets a chance to decide that because it's all cut off before she can make that decision. Mm -hmm. And the harms that come to her, interestingly, come from someone else who finds they cannot forgive the insult that society has borne against his family, Walter Frey. And so I I guess she doesn't. But when it comes to Liza, I just like, I don't know if... I don't think Kat's offloading the responsibility either, as you said, but I just mm-hmm. don't know that it's Kat's place to decide and to give Hoster that forgiveness because the harm was against Liza, not against Catelyn. So I guess she could em- offer him something, but I think ultimately she knows that whatever she gives him is empty and it's not hers and, and that's meaningful to her. And then when we come to the point of Enyr, I love the point that you made that she reacted badly to him Partially out of a frustration, perhaps even jealousy of the freedom and control he has over his own life. And besides that, it's that Amir has freedom, but he also has power and control over Catelyn's life, Catelyn's fate. And more than that, as we see in the orders that he gives towards the ends of the chapter, the fates of Catelyn's children. Whereas Catelyn has none. She has no freedom. She has no power because in a huge gamble, she sacrificed what little power society gave her and her freedom, in the hope of reuniting with her daughters, and Edmure jeopardizes that. She gave everything.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with this. This is uh, great aspects from both Amy and from both you. It's so hard just to even accept, like, any grieving you do feels half-assed. You can do nothing. And this chapter is absolutely, as we'll talk about, just like, Catelyn's lack of agency over everything. I uh, I definitely agree that like it's not Catalin's sin to forgive, right? Like it's not she can't yeah. just go giving forgiveness out for something that like she can't. She didn't suffer that. Uh, we'll talk about it as we go along. It's not her place to forgive Hoster. It's not at all, and that comes up very prominently in this chapter. And it's like. We've spent so long feeling bad for Catelyn in these aspects, right? In that she was sold off like cattle in Cersei, right? But Cersei and Liza's stories uh, as both, they're very, they're villains in our minds when we come to some of the protagonists that deal with them and some of their attitudes. But as you read this chapter and as you get to that book end, at the end of this book where Liza reveals all to Littlefinger in front of Sansa. Hopefully, will understand some empathy when it comes her time to shine in the plot. It's just heart wrenching, right? Like, how could you, how could you not give sympathy to this woman and what she went through? It's very harsh.
1: Absolutely, and I think Cat writes to her and the importance of her not giving that forgiveness on behalf of her sister. I mean, she sees through this, and we'll discuss that more later in this chapter. That her sister, like Catelyn now, has had freedom and power taken from her, and even more so, happiness. Catelyn at least had that, right? She had love. Liza did not. And the very least thing, I think, that Liza can have control over, whether or not like withholding it heals her or not, at least she has power over whether or not she forgives.
0: Yeah. And
1: I think when you
0: have no power over your life, you take what you can get. Yeah, that's you know, uh did you did you watch In the Heights the movie version?
1: I started it and then I got distracted and have not finished it.
0: I get it. I get it. I'm not going to pressure you right now. But I just got distracted. Definitely finish it. There's this moment where uh Abuela, you know, she's the, she's the grandmother of the block. This woman who has, like just given her life to like watching these children grow up to adults to succeed around her and she has this moment where she talks about the little dignities that she takes, right? And mm, and yeah. sometimes it really makes me think of these reveries and these dignities that the woman in A Song of Ice and Fire take when they have nothing. I mean, even mm-hmm. Cersei, right? Even Cersei when she has her moments of dignity that she grasps out of the thinnest of air because she has nothing else from these people that just like put her down. Mm-hmm. I think about that a lot. Just like the the delivery, I've seen the bootleg version of this musical. I have not seen it in person oh. in a theater. I don't know is that Bullwinkle? We don't know what that is. But I, I have not seen In the Heights and Theater. I've seen a few or the other HBO Max
1: versions. I have seen it in
0: HBO, yes. I have seen uh. it in HBO Maximum. Yes. The most Maximum, maximum. of things. But uh, HBO Maximum. HBO Maximus. What am I even. doing here? <laughs> uh, But I just think of that, I do think of that, just the little dignities, and uh, Mm -hmm. I think George is great about writing those little dignities that characters take, and in this chapter, it, it feels so unfair, right, that Catelyn to indulge in those tiny, tiny moments of dignity just to make up for the big ones she's missing, all the moments with her daughters she's missing, all the moments with her sons that she's missing. The moments at home she should be having. Think about all the pictures I've taken of my Sims having good moments in The Sims 4, you know? And Catalan doesn't get those moments. She doesn't get those photos of her and her children. Absolutely not.
1: None of it. None of the berry challenge.
0: <laughs> the not-so-berry challenge? Thank uh, you. I'm sorry, not-so-berry
1: challenge. My bad. My bad.
0: We are a Sims family in this girl's gone canon house. I guess so. <laughs> Thank you, Amy, for sending us such a thoughtful email. It was wonderful, as per usual. But we do have another email, another email to speak of. Yes, and this one comes from our friend Mary, whom
1: you may all know from the Learned Hands podcast. And Mary starts with, hello, wonderful friends. I didn't connect with Kat when I first read the books, but the past couple years, she's become the POV that hits me most profoundly. Part of that is because I have kids now, and I'm trying to raise them amid COVID sob. But one thing you both made me see is the mounting exhaustion in her chapters. And God, the way you cut to the raw core of her feelings about waiting and waiting, nothing she can do is enough in like a thousand ways, but she keeps going. Like a zombie, even eyes emoji, grimacing emoji. Not to get <laughs> in feels, but I relate to that a lot, and so definitely Catlin needs therapy. Chloe, you mentioned your feels for the good that won't come out, and gosh, it reminds me of Cat. I apologize That's a song
0: for this. Bye, Rilo, Kylie. Sorry. <laughs>
1: Listening to your wonderful episode with Monero and your mini-sode with Nauticast and generally thinking my merry thoughts, I've been meditating on the duty theme and its relationship to the house Tully words in Kat's arc. So I wrote up these thoughts. Wallowing with Jamie in Riverrun's dungeons, it's a sense of duty that shatters for Catelyn, and in particular her faith, that doing what her family demanded of her, with society deemed moral and right, had any kind of reward. Jamie helps her let go of the belief that doing the right thing means, eventually, everything will work out for you, and that if you just wait, you will get the good you deserve. So Cat, at her most desperate and reckless, embraces the lesson years of waiting taught her. Duty is the death of love, the real love we hold and cherish. She swore and swore for duty, for honor, but those promises didn't save her family, and they didn't fill her soul. Brandon chose duty, Ned chose duty, Rob chooses duty, duty chooses Catelyn, and Catelyn, dutifully, accepts. But duty and the love Cat wants, they're adversaries. Covered in shit, the cell tells her, duty is a thief. that chain shut your husband's soul, stole his body from your bed, and took your children from your arms. Relentless, duty will demand you give until you forget yourself, until you're a husk, dead and walking. Catelyn, waiting and waiting for the love she is supposed to have won, is parched. I mean, she seemed pretty thirsty in that cell. Um, Love delayed, love denied, calcified into resent. What chance does Kat have for life without her daughters? Can she even have this one hope? She'll be good, she'll do her duty, if the gods who fail her again and again grant her this one mercy. But of course they do not, as far as she knows at least, and, well, we all know how that turns out. In that sense of almost inhumanness and resentment, that duty stole love from her, that hits me most in these chapters. As Maester Eamon tells John. We are only human, and the gods have fashioned us for love. So when the love you have left is stolen from you, what is left of your soul? XOXO. Gossip Maester Mary. Mary. No. <laughs> yeah, <Maester laughs> Mary. It actually says cat is the fucking Who saddest ever. Who that... needs <laughs> Yeah, she she added that one line. Cat is the fucking saddest ever. That's that's your gossip girl sign off.
0: That's your PPS from Maester Mary from the Learn Hands podcast. Yes, you may recognize the Maester Mary from our Jonathan Snow episodes. You know, I want it. Um Have to agree. Have to agree. Cat is the fucking saddest ever. Mary's not incorrect here, and I love that Mary brought some music into it. I love uh, learned hands, and this isn't just because I'm a selfish bitch. Learned hands really dug. My brainy playlist. Yeah, I have a brainy playlist, but it's bold. It's very grassroots, you know? It's very, like, bluegrass. It's very, like, we're outlaws on the run, fucking shit up in River Run while everything's burning down, but also, like, we won't admit we love each other until we have to break up kind of thing. You know, it's it's a very complicated feeling is what I'm trying to convey, and Mary gets that. Mary gets that, so I respect that about Mary. I do have to comment... Mary brought up Rilo, Kylie, the good that won't come out, the song by them. It's a great song. Musical break, great song. One of my favorites. And uh, it just has these lyrics, has this bridge where Jenny Lewis, the angel of all things, breaks into this moment. She's like, I think I'll go out and embarrass myself by getting drunk and falling down in the street. You say I choose sadness that it never once has chosen me. Maybe you're right. Uh, And that moment specifically is just, like, such a, like, deep penetrating moment. Like, you say I chose sadness that it never once chose me. Maybe you're right. And for Kat, I feel like that's, like, on point for this chapter, right? Like, Kat is, her sadness is so vast and so deep, but, like, she doesn't even know how to convey Liza's sadness when she realizes it, when she realizes, wow, this woman is broken deeper and more scarred and more deeply than I am. Uh, that realization is so haunting and so deep. And, you know, I, I, there's, Rilo Kiley O'Kylie's a great, a great artist, a great band to listen to, actually, if you like Cat, There's actually a song, if you're a Rilo Kiley fan, that you should check out called Better Son Slash Daughter. Uh, and I think it has some bearing as we move through this end of A Storm of Swords and as we break into maybe another book later, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Interesting. Interesting. And yeah, I-, I love this analysis and letter also from Mary. I uh, didn't listen to as much Rilo Kylie. I like heard a few songs here and there, you know? <gasps> back in the back in the aughts, during I
0: think You respect Jenny Lewis with your whole mouth. Oh yeah. First of no, all. I I definitely Man. know some of the Man. I know some of these
1: songs, but like yeah, I was in um- Portion for Foxes.
0: You know Portion for Foxes, right? If anyway, oh my god, I definitely know better. Son so daughter, stay. but
1: I think what's really interesting that Mary has done in this letter, besides pointing out how Brandon, Ned, and Rob all choose duty, another Stark s character does too, and Mary brings this up explicitly in these connections of how John's story also really intertwines with duty and. You know, I, we don't mean this to be like cruel or anything, but there are, as, as we've seen, despite the obvious like ways that Catelyn and John's stories and lives touch one another and how they're mm. both, uh, you know, intertwined in the trauma that each one faces with Catelyn and the powerlessness within her house and John and the withholding of love and that neglect and that exclusion as a child, where all the duty comes from, right? John obviously pursues it at the risk at at the expense of everything else. He also has love delayed, love denied, but isn't quite at resent yet, right? Where he chose duty over love and chose honor, right, and all of that over family because the one had to become his family. That's the death of duty. Uh, exactly. Oh, I'm sorry, exactly. that's from the show. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well. Also, and and like to, it's interesting to contrast them too because. Catelyn gets to easily choose duty, right? She can do all these things within that name and accept it because she was born into the confines of a position where duty A is foisted upon her and B, I mean again, she has power within that system in many ways, right? Whereas John is born outside of that system and is always going to be representative of how especially to Catelyn is representative to her of the way that one flouts duty, and is uh, and he internalizes this this idea that he is a yes. mark of dishonor. So, um, yet I, again, there's I think a way that their themes really intersect.
0: This chapter especially, there feels like a bunch yeah. that they're like really intersecting at as far as John's feelings of what he owes, especially to Corin Halfhand or Co Morin Halfhand, and catalan to what she owes to her family and uh this chapter is like certainly a big moment for catalan that she's hoisted on her own patire if you will
1: oh my god i hate everything
0: anyways Uh, so
1: thank you to everyone for writing into us
0: yeah if you want to send us your thoughts on a chapter please do we love emails. Eliana loves emails and reviews. She she loves it. She gobbles up that shit. So send us an email over at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. C-A-N-O-N. Or you can send us a tweet or a DM over at girlsgonecanon at Twitter. But, but, you know, a lot of people are really expecting a lightning round, Eliana, during this episode. And I I hate to break it to them, but it's not going to be a lightning round. It's going to be a whole storm of swords. Wow, of swords. Eventually. (gasps) Got him. Swing, clang, (laughs) swing, swing. No, but first we will start back at a clash of kings, right? When we last left Catalan, this is Catalan 1, a storm of swords. And when we last left her, it was in a clash of kings with Theon 5. At his sister's entrance and request, Theon refuses to abandon his conquest in Winterfell, even though his nightmares say he probably should, too. And then that brings us to the Blackwater Boogaloo.
1: A lot of things happen, especially in Sansa 5, 6, and 7. Sansa tries to give hope to the ladies in King's Landing against the horrors of wildfire and war awaiting them. Cersei is a really mean drunk. Sandor is also a goddamn mean and sad drunk. So is Dantos. Oh yeah, and thanks to the Tyrells, they all actually survived this
0: one. Yes, and that pulls us into Davos 3. Things are bad! (laughs) Things are bad.
1: And then, lastly, in the Blackwater Boogaloo are Tyrion 13 and 14. Things are also bad, and (laughs) Tyrion mislead a sortie. Podrick Payne saves his ass, though.
0: True. We leave the Blackwater Boogaloo... To get into Daenerys five, at Zaro Zoxys' warnings and an a- assassination attempt by a Manticore, Danny concedes to leave Karth forever with some new men in arms.
1: <sighs> and then we have Arya ten. Arya uses Jockin's coin and her own quick thinking to escape Harrenhal.
0: Sansa eight. Sansa is set aside to her happiness, but she also. Is given her own gift of death. Hmm. Theon
1: 6. Ramsey punches Theon's dumb face.
0: <laughs> it's true. Tyrion 15. Tyrion wakes after the black water, missing just a little bit of his nose.
1: Just a bit. <laughs>
0: John 8.
1: John must play the role of the betrayer of a craven murderer damned.
0: That was pretty good. You did pretty Thank good. Thank you. Thank you. That brings us to the end of A Clash of Kings. Brand 7. It was not dead. Just broken. Like me, he thought. I'm not dead either. Wow.
1: That's hurtful. (sighs) It's
0: hurtful. I'm in a little pain, so take us into a storm of swords. Yeah. We come into
1: storm. Storm. And it's a storm because the sky is crying. It's crying swords. Our eyes are also crying swords. Um, The prologue. Chet has lived his ultimate incel lifestyle here on the wall. But now it's time for something new.
0: Betrayal. But first, the others. Jamie won. Jamie considers breaking his oath, but instead he marvels at Brienne's sense of duty. Yeah, he does. You know what I mean? He marvels. (laughs) He actually marvels. You know what I mean? He's like, oh, oh God, that duty. Oh, my God. He's like, maybe fucking my sister is the only one who
1: ever wasn't a flex. (laughs) (laughs) What if fucking Brienne was the flex, Jamie asks? Actually, though. Well, Mm -hmm. speaking of fucking other women, um, (laughs) I do want to highlight because this is kind of. These these are important to Cat's storyline. They come up in Jamie's chapter, and this is essentially what happens right after the last Catlin chapter in The Clash of Kings. Where I mean th- these are these two paragraphs basically are all of it of they'd all done a deal of vowing back in that cell, Jamie most of all. That was Lady Catlin's price for loosing him. She had laid the point of the Big Wench's sword against his heart and said, Swear that you will never again take up arms against Stark nor Tully. Swear that you will compel your Brother to honor his pledge to return my daughter safe and unharmed. Swear on your honor as a knight, on your honor as a Lannister, on your honor as a sworn brother of the Kingsguard. Swear it by your sister's life, and your father's, and your son's, by the old gods and the new, and I'll send you back to your sister. Refuse, and I will have your blood. He remembered the prick of the steel through his rags as she twisted the point of the sword. "'I wonder what the High Septon would have to say about the sanctity of oaths "'sworn while dead drunk, chained to a wall, with a sword pressed to your chest.' "'Not that Jamie was truly concerned about that fat fraud or the gods he claimed to serve. "'He remembered the pale Lady Catlin had kicked over in his cell. "'A strange woman to trust her girls to a man with shit for honor, "'though she was trusting him as little as she dared. "'She's putting her hope in Tyrion, not in me. "'Perhaps
0: she is not so stupid after all.' He said aloud, "That feels fitting, right? Like, I keep like accidentally coming out as a Tyrion stand on here, like slightly, like not in like a. Have you noticed it (gasps) lately? Is it like a problem? Like, yeah, I don't mean it. It's just like I think think Tyrion is an example, right? Like, I think exactly. Like, I think he's being made an example of in the very end of the story, hopefully, and that like he is, you know, like I personally as a half shitty person too." I get it. I get it, Tyrion. I don't know. I'm glad Kat understands capitalism going on here. Like that she had Jamie and she let him go on purpose and that like Jamie also understands it. She's putting her hope in Tyrion. She knows Jamie is not maybe to be I wouldn't say trusted, it's just like if there are other people you could put more hope within. Other people who
1: you know, they, they just have more follow through. I think Jamie has follow through just on the wrong things most of the time. And it's into, I think it's funny that he points out, like, I wonder what the High Septon would say about the sanctity of O's and stuff. And that, that she ends, right? By having him swear all these other vows after he told her, you know what I am really bad at? Vows. Vows, <laughs> vows are really hard. And she's like, let's just throw on a few more. Whatever. Fuck it. Uh, I mean, what, what is a few more, more right? Yeah, what is a few more? Like, I think that's part of it, right? That's part of the, you know, the absurdity of duty and honor that we start seeing here in A Storm of Swords. Not only do they all find out that it fails them, they find out it's a farce. So again, why not just pile on a few more if
0: they're all meaningless anyway? Yeah, I mean, for Jamie it's kind of a lark, right? Like, that she's keep going, like, okay, (laughs) why not more? Absolutely. It's all gonna blow up in your dumb faces soon. Goddamn dieborns. <laughs> mostly Catelyn who uh, dies. It's a bummer. Yeah,
1: mostly Catelyn who dies. Which, yeah, I mean, that's that's it. That's the Storm of Swords overview. That's my input for the Catelyn <laughs> one the Storm of Swords overview. She dies at the end of her POVs of this book. Uh, she also comes back at the end of the book um,
0: as Ooh, That's death. a good call. That's a really that, great that's, call. That's she her does story. She come back. <laughs> That is what she does. Great call, Eliana, And that does bring us into our Catelyn 1 in a Storm of Swords and a Storm of Swords Catelyn overview. Catelyn 1, is it a beginning to an end? No punishment fits this weeping mother's crime as we open a Storm of Swords in her ancestral home. Catelyn's lost its stream. She's lost all. Her father, her children, her brother, her very little rights, no cat rights. And when her brother insists that her crime is covered up, her agency gets further removed. The woman breaks. I'm sorry everyone, I'm watching a lot of secession lately, so that's a new thing. We're gonna see a lot of analysis. It's kind of like that. Maybe the Tollies are the Pierce family, you know, the Lannisters are the Roy family, but something that sticks out during Catalan's Astor of Swords overview is Catalan's choice, right? Uh, This is the beginning of A Storm of Swords, and what a book, what a structure, what a story, but Catelyn's choice, that gets taken away from her, right? Catelyn, in a clash of kings, in her last chapter, chose to set Jaime free, to take what little power she had left and get her children back. And that gets taken away from her in Catelyn 1. Every moment of her story gets rewritten by Edmir. He rewrites her history, her story. While her daughters are busy being beat and suffering and trying to get back home, both daughters, right? Arya and Sanzo, they're being forged in the fires of the same society Catelyn has weathered. And they're also actively being erased from that society, and that's what she's trying to prevent from happening, but it's too late. It's too late and everything is falling apart, as we see through the rest of
1: Catelyn's POV chapters. I mean, her making this choice I don't think that was the one thing, the the one domino that sets everything off mm-hmm. there were all these little things falling apart and it's all just slipping through her fingers and more and more, you know, every chapter, it's like, can my surprise Pikachu be even more surprise Pikachu, and oh I God. think that's how Catelyn feels on the inside, can her little Pikachu mouth get bigger as she's more and more and more is like Oh my god, what is it's, happening? This is all not going according
0: to Keikaku. Oh my so. god. I'm going to show you according to Kikaku. <laughs> <sighs> it's true though, and I'd like to see that Photoshop. Just want to put that out there. The
1: gif of like, Cat, you know, Catlin 1, small Pikachu mouth, Catlin 2,
0: wider. bye <laughs> <laughs> POV.
1: bye POV. <sighs>
0: Well the last the last one is a uh, beheading. <laughs> the throat is slit. <laughs> I thought you were talking about her beheading Jamie's cock. I was like, "Interesting. That's a fanfic."
1: <gasps> no. I was talking about Pikachu, poor Pikachu.
0: Yeah. I'm sad for Catalin in this chapter because I feel like the time for caution was prior to now. You know, Clash of Kings was the time to apply caution, and I'm going to be honest, she did try in a Game of Thrones. But Clash of Kings proved she had to keep going faster and stronger than everyone else. And here we are in Storm, and she's playing every card that she holds in Catalan 1. It starts off with, Sir Desmond Grell had served House Tully
1: all his life. He had been a squire when Catlin was born. A knight when she learned to walk and ride and swim. Master at arms by the day that she was wed. He had seen Lord Hoster's little cat become a young woman. A great lord's lady. Mother to a king. And now he has seen me become a traitor as well. (laughs) Great, great strong opening. As always from George. And I I just love those two lines. Oh, it shows the progression of Sir Desmond Grell's life and alongside it, you know, he did his duty, right? And she's marking all uh, his life against the big milestones of hers as though he exists only in juxtaposition to her, which I guess technically, narratively, yes, that's true. Um, And then that twist at the end, right, of After, not only did she do all the things she was supposed to do, she exceeded expectations by becoming mother to a king, and then finally she has become a traitor. Usually you think they're going to end up as Crone, but she becomes a traitor, and it actually, again, reminds me a little bit of Daenerys, right? She's supposed to go maiden, mother, Mm -hmm. Dosh Khaleen,
0: and she's like,
1: no, I'm going to do my own thing now. I'm going
0: to still be a mother, but now mother of dragons. Catelyn is indeed that mother of wolves right here mm. um, it, it's so sad because like I just can see like you know growing up with family friends who expect something else from you and think something of you and here she is proving them all wrong and yeah Desmond especially has a different role now Edmure had named him Kasselin while Edmure had gone off to fight so he can't deal with Cat's crime alone he brings Eutherity Swain for moral support. She thinks they have given their lives to my father's service and I've repaid them with disgrace. Both men express their condolences at the alleged loss of Bran and ricken They empathize with Kat's mother madness. They attempt to make excuses for her. They imply she was ignorant of the implications, but Kat insists she knew the cost. She points out they have to punish her lest they are accused of treason, too.
1: So, at least she's looking out for them, right? She understands how her class is functioning here. But I will say that all of this is, of course, the morning after from Freeing Jamie, and it's a great segue from the last chapter and how it all fits together structurally, because last chapter we were introduced to the true story behind the deaths of Rickard and Brandon Stark. And... Interestingly, I think I see a lot of parallels, right, between what Brandon Stark did and also what Rickard Stark did and why I think that story was important to bring up to show why Catelyn does what she does. And then, you know, how it leads into here, because Brandon Stark running to King's Landing and all of it also ending in disaster mirrors Catelyn's choice to do something reckless, treasonous, because Brandon does a really gallant, foolish last-ditch effort to save his family, his sister, when she is imprisoned by royals. And then, of course, his dad has to come down, because he also gets in prison and, you know, their family, like, actually loves each other. And... That's exactly the same sort of, if you will, foolishness. Or here they're calling it mother's madness that leads Catelyn to freeing Jamie. But it's not called mother's madness when Brandon does it, nor when Rickard does it. Granted, of course, Brandon—I mean, he essentially also committed treason because he's going in there and he's yelling, "I want to kill the crown prince." And I—I I think that's that's a pretty explicit, like, admission of treason. You know, <laughs> that that that's pretty bad out loud. And, the, <laughs> but again. <laughs> Uh, yeah, right. The motivation though behind both is the same—the desire to save <laughs> your family members that you love. And as uh, the folks over on NadaCast pointed out, there's a similar, I think, motivation though a little bit different to what Rickard Karstark does, where his is born out of also this sort of desperation, but this grief and and vengeance. Right? Is that also madness? Then they don't seem to call it that, but there is of course a difference between murder and whatever. That's just hot headedness. And also, I think you know what's at play here is because Catelyn brings it up multiple times throughout this chapter or other people do and she questions it she's like mother's madness was I mad to do this or was it deeply actually very rational anyways the acts that women or that mothers do and are equated to madness when these kinds of like ridiculous spur-of-the-moment things are expected of men as it was of Brandon or for example Jamie's treason where he kills the king interestingly that's never called madness that's That's just treason. I mean, it it really was. That's just
0: hot-headedness.
1: It was. And, I mean, it was treason also. (laughs) But it was right, probably. But the assumption of women being soft of head when they go against laws or, like, these unspoken societal laws, or the explicit legal ones, and also all these in-betweens of gender expectations, I think this phrase of Mother's Madness is going to maybe come up again later in the story, but with a kind of different meaning with, as we brought up earlier, Daenerys' story, right? She's a character that is seen as a mother, and she's probably going to have this narrative of madness foisted onto her by not only the men around her, but probably the whole country. So...
0: You know, when I think of women uh, and the mother's madness and this kind of plot, right, like this kind of story carrying forward, it makes me think of Helena Targaryen from Hmm. The Dance of the Dragons, right, who lost her children, who had to watch them die in front of her. It it makes me think of Helena being a Catelyn-type figure, kept alive to see these horrors in front of her that she really didn't ask for, necessarily, Some people may claim she asked for them. It's
1: an interesting point to bring up also because, I mean, Helena, Wright is characterized afterwards with this this great grief, maybe a psychotic break, and I kind of wonder...
0: Makes me think of that.
1: It also makes me wonder, is Mother's Madness a phrase we should be thinking about in
0: regards to Liza? I think so. I I do think so, and this chapter might be my, like, Liza Defense Squad chapter, just because, like, it's so funny fucking sad dude it's awful yeah. i would hope that in like my worst moments anyone would offer me any thought of decency you know i hope anyone would spare me the thoughts i think about liza because like i've had some shitty moments i haven't always looked great to the public but poor liza she didn't deserve this no one deserves that
1: you brought up earlier like interestingly you're starting to feel much more sympathetic towards Tyrion i think Lysa and Tyrion they're part of the same thesis in this book right of trying to understand like you know sometimes sometimes horrible things happen to people and as as you pointed out earlier the person breaks Broken and things. and yeah Tyrion that, that's part of why he seems so sympathetic, so we watch that journey through him, and here with Liza, it's more of a starting to get that background of why she is the way she is. It, it's told in a different temporality, but similar, similar ideas.
0: Yes. Well, the two balk at putting cattle in an irons, and they're like, what if we put you in this super cush room? And she's like, what if you just let me be in my dad's room, where he's, you know, dying? You can put a guard on the room, I promise I won't run away. And then Eutherides decides to give one last lecture. He's like, Desmond has set Robin Riger to retrieve or kill Jamie Lannister. Don't you worry. All your crime will soon be gone. Catelyn then prays for Brienne's strength. She had done all she could do. Nothing remained but to hope. They move all her things into her father's room, even her canopy bed. Hoster's bed is moved to face the rivers, and when she enters, she goes to the balcony to overlook the riverlands, down the river where the tumblestone joins the red fork. She's thankful the rivers are empty because it means Robin Reiger is not returning with her prisoner. I had to call out this language here; it was very sad. Her things were moved into her father's bedchamber, dominated by the great canopied bed she'd been born in, its pillars carved in the shapes of leaping trout. It just felt so eloquent, right? The bed she was born in, next to the bed that he's going to die in. Mm -hmm. It it makes me think about how Minissa birthed her in that bed, right? With those leaping trouts in those corners. Minissa was the bed he truly dies in, right? The bed he died in back then. She's gone. And now Catelyn hopes any semblance of her can help him carry on to the afterlife.
1: That's that's such a... Great way to tie Catelyn's life and story together, and that of her family's. It's, it also just sounds like a cool bed. Um,
0: <laughs> it's beautiful, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, to fuck between leaping trout. Oh my god. Catlin wonders if her father is conscious enough to know that she's there, or if it's comfort to him at all. And she wonders how Hoster would react to what she did. If he would do the same, had she and Liza been captured by their enemies? Or would Hoster condemn her and also call it Mother's Madness? And I think it's an interesting question. We don't get an exact answer. And we are going to get, though, more of maybe how Hoster might have approached this, some of his thought process. Information to inform what he might have decided, though, through this very chapter. So, great question, Kat. Timely one.
0: (laughs) Timeless, if you will. Right? And it doesn't, like, increase in that feeling because... The room smells like death. Like, it does not smell good there. Everything's getting more depressing by the moment. Catelyn is mourning for her sons and Ned, and she's praying, and she says, it is a monstrous, cruel thing to lose a child. At that exact moment, though, interestingly, Hoster says, Tansy! (laughs) Cat's like, I'm not Tansy, Catelyn, your daughter. And as Hoster... Silently, but not so silently, begs for her forgiveness. Speaking of the blood and the tansy, Catelyn realizes, Could there have been another woman? In her father's life? Some village maiden he had wronged when he was young, perhaps. Could he have found some comfort in some serving wench's arms after mother died? It was a queer thought. Unsettling. Suddenly she felt as though... She had not known her father at all. "'Who is Tansy, my lord? Do you want
1: me to send for her father? Where would I find the woman?
0: Does she still live?' Lord Hoster groaned. "'Dead!' His hand groped for hers. "'You'll have others, sweet babes, true-born.' "'Others?' Catelyn thought.
1: "'Has he forgotten that Ned is gone?' Is he still talking to Tansy? Or is it me now? Or Liza? Or Mother?
0: What a mood. When he coughed, the sputum came up bloody. He clutched her fingers. Be a good wife, and the gods will bless you. Sons, true born sons. Ugh. The sudden spasm of pain made Lord Hoster's hand tighten. His nails dug into her hand. He gave a muffled scream. Ah, what good balance, right? Uh, starting the book with Tansy. I mean, Jamie was there. We don't count him. But starting the book with Tansy and ending it with Sansa 7, right? We have in Sansa 7, Liza. Tears ran down her aunt's puffy red face. I gave you my maiden's gift. I would have given you a son too, but they murdered him with moon tea. With tansy and mint and wormwood, a spoon of honey, a drop of pennyroyal. It wasn't me, I never knew. I only drank what father gave me. Uh Ugh, it's such desperation and sadness, poor Liza. And of course, it's indirectly setting up Jane Westerling, right, who shows up in the very next Catalan chapter. It wasn't her, she never knew. She only drank what her mother gave her. And that line, right, that could he have found comfort in some serving wench's arms after mother died, it's so devastating that here Catalan is realizing, what if we never know our fathers, right? What if we never know our family? We start with Hoster's mystery at the very front of the story, but we end with Tywin being found in comfort in some serving wench's arms, quote unquote, right, Mm -hmm. in Shay's arms, idolizing their parents, not knowing that truth behind them. What a strong theme in both Lannister and Tully during A Storm of Swords. For Catelyn at this front of A Storm of Swords, and just like Nauticast recently discussed on their first Catelyn 1 A Storm of Swords episode, they discussed that mirror to Cersei, right? You start a feast for crows with Cersei the same as Catelyn realizing, my dead father, I never actually knew what the truth was before him.
1: Absolutely. And Catelyn finds that it's a much darker truth than she'd expected. And I feel like it's interesting because Catelyn is ready to accept it as true, though she's not sure who her father is anymore in that moment. But she's not necessarily ready to accept it as fine, but she can accept it as true because of her own experiences that hammer home to her that even the most honorable of men break their marriage vows and have bastards, allegedly, Uh, and whereas Cersei is uh, too unwilling to let go of that image of her father. She wants it hidden that this ever happened, that Tywin ever was in the bed of another serving wench or was ever in the bed with Shay. whereas Catelyn tries to find Tansy in order to seek answers. And Catelyn, after having everything else about the world shattered before her, is ready to finally shatter that last lie that, to be honest, actually most people shatter during adolescence slash early adulthood. And I mean, I guess she's only 32, but most people get to this point much earlier, is all I'm saying. And that's the lie of our parents being perfect superhumans, right? She's learning that her parents are imperfect. Her parents are human, they make mistakes, and unfortunately, Hoster made huge mistakes. Uh, mistakes that, like the mistakes of many parents, are deeply hurtful to their children. Which, as you said, Chloe, ties nicely with the end of this book. Uh, not the Stoneheart part, but and not just the beginning of A Feast for Crows, but with Tyrion, right? He undergoes the same dilemma as he comes upon his own revelation about his father. Uh, not just, you know, finding out that his father was sleeping with women, or other women still, but that his father, as Hoster did to Liza, has committed a great hurt against him, you know, amongst the many other hurts that uh, Tyrion has endured at his father. But, um, you know, and whereas Kat's discovery may be considered the anagnorisis within the terminology of Aristotle's poetics, when it comes to Greek tra- tragedies, meaning the movement from ignorance to knowledge in which the true standing of things is revealed, especially of a person's nature, unlike Tyrion's discovery, unlike his anagnorisis of Tywin. Catelyn's with Hoster is not followed by the peripatia, right? The reversal of fortune. And so Catelyn's story never actually gets to a point in which catharsis is possible. There is no purification of the story, and with satisfaction and happiness denied her in life, her narrative instead seeks that story catharsis in the continued afterlife with revenge. And I don't think you can really purify things with a, you know more death of innocence but uh that's that's the point i think
0: no well, that's so well said because it's like how could she there's no movement to be made at this point right with catharsis mm-hmm. it's it's over this is closure's gone <laughs> <laughs> well you know that happens from the whole murder thing and yeah we will talk about that as we get into a storm of swords but well said eliana Maester Vyman comes in to give Hoster more drugs to put him to sleep. Kat discusses who Tansy may have been with him, and Kat comes up with one possibility with Vyman. But then it turns out the woman's name is Violet. She was a woman that used to come to the village often, to the city often, to River Run. Vyman apologizes. He's like, I can only talk a limited amount. I'm not really actually allowed to talk to you, uh, by the way, (laughs) haha, fearing that Cat might use her position and history with Riverrun's folk for more hijinks. Which, of course, reminds me a little bit of Arianne's chapters, which we've covered, right? She wasn't allowed to talk to the girls very much. They wouldn't speak back. They stayed silent. All the serving maids that came to her. And Cersei, as well, later on, right? She trades out her servants daily. She doesn't, but they do for her because they can't trust that motherfucker. And I respect that about Cersei. You know, Catelyn wonders after what her father truly thinks, you know, past past the exhaustion and the whole death and old age thing. She thinks later at one point, must it all come back to blood? Father, who was this woman and what did you do to her that needs so much forgiveness? Which, mm-hmm. that's not too far offline with those RN point of views, right? Wondering what her father's hmm. scheming really means, Grieving the warrior, she thought maybe he once was. And I do have to say that I love what Vyman says to her when she's like, was it news of Rob? And he hesitates, right? He's like, yes, my lady, it was. I can't tell you, though. Uh, If I was a a tinfoil theorist, which once upon a time I might have been, I'd bet Rob was like sending word ahead of time, right? Like he's hinting, hey, I fucked another chick. It's over. Uh, But now, I, an older human, I'm like, oh no, it's just phrasing. It's just phrasing and Desmond's like, bitch, if I tell you I'm so fucked and I'm gonna get murdered.
1: Yeah, he tells her a bit more later, but I like what you're pointing out with the mirror to Arian's POVs, because not only is Arian grieving the warrior she thought her father was, uh, I think you also see Arianne has her own revelations of who her father really was, but it goes the other way, and then they become closer for a moment versus Kat and Hoster and those revelations putting distance between them. But I I find Maester Voteman so funny. Um, You know, I think that he actually ends up talking to her, unlike the ones in Arianne and Cersei's chapters, Mm -hmm. which kind of shows the importance and the respect that Catelyn commands and that the Tullys have in Riverrun. Uh, And maybe they also... Give and show that same respect to the household, and that gives her some, like, sort of proximity to them, except for that time in the dungeons last chapter where she was kind of mean to that man. <laughs> um, but Maester Vimon, like, divulges a lot to her throughout the chapter. Maybe he's like lonely and really wants someone to gossip with, but I also think it's pretty hilarious because Catelyn, when she first arrived at Riverrun, she's like, Yeah, I don't really know Maester Vyman and I don't really know if i trust him. I really liked, uh, my maester of my childhood, maester Kim. Yeah, but Vyman proves to be a pretty decent ally, and I kind of find him just inter- just funny. Kind of like Pylos. He's kind of like my my new maester Pylos. They're all interchangeable to me.
0: Does remind me a bit of Pylos. He makes, I think, a Theamore, too, that tells uh. Uh, them about the promise in the north. And I do think like, Vyman is just so fresh and new, right? Like, he feels straight off the citadel, and Mm. I think a lot of people have Vyman theories of like what he could be up to. Maester theories, right? I, I love this. What we get later with Jamie's chapters. It was River Run's old Maester with a message clutch in his lined and wrinkled hand. So Vyman's not young. I'm wrong. Vyman's face was as pale as the new fallen snow. I know, Jamie said. There's been a white raven from Citadel. Winter's come. No, my lord. The bird was from King's Landing. I took the liberty. I did not know. He held the letter out. So, Viman reads the incest letter later on, as we've already kind of covered in the Jamie chapters, and he's like, wait, what? Like, holy shit. The Tollies were crazy, but they weren't this crazy, right? And... I feel for Viman. He has to research Tansy. He has to research the Jamie shit. He has to deliver the Brand Rickon news. He gets seasoned really fast, right? Like, he also had to deal with Jamie often in that dungeon. What a, what a poor motherfucker. Like, I feel for Maester Viman. That's true. Yeah, I mean, he has to deliver the
1: news. Also, he has to, like, shepherd this old... Like, he has to shepherd this man into death <laughs> too. He gets here and he has to, like do all of this, so that's a great point. He's kind of just thrown into it, and uwu, Maester Viman. Yeah. I, li- I like that, uh, yeah, that reminder of he's just like, wait, what, I'm, I'm so sorry. I
0: opened your DMs. Did not mean to know su- that you suck your sister's clit, but yeah. since we Did are we- here. I'm sorry I saw your sex. <laughs> they were good sex, though, you had great rhythm. Anyway. Uh. Well, when
1: Maester Ryman leaves, Cat goes back on the balcony to, again, look for sales. She watches a lot, she sees a raven, and then when Maester Ryman returns, he's like, there was no woman named Tansy. Cat asks after the Raven if there's word regarding Jamie and nicely prod slash guilds Vyman into telling her what it said. He's hesitant, but you know, he folds. Alright, he tells her that Tywin has left the Riverlands. Rob is wounded, but fine. Saying it's no cause for concern. Catelyn, though, is concerned. Me, the reader on a reread. I am concerned. And as she presses, Vyman finally is like, can't talk. Literally, origin not to got to go by. <laughs> yeah.
0: It's kind of a really sad, like, fleeting conversation because she's also highlighting it all right now in her mind with, like, could father have had a bastard? Question mark. And she's, like, really worried about it. She's like, this woman, Tansy, did he fuck her? What a haunting thought to have right now while she's being told of the truth of where her son is, where Enmir is, and... It's honestly just kind of sad and exhausting that here's Catalan's book three plot, and it's the ghost of a past investigation, right? It's mm-hmm. the same thing she's already tried to figure out with a man and his bastard. Why does it always come down to this, she thinks, a man and their bastard? But here, the the overarching thought of the chapter is that it's not actually the man and his bastard that she thinks it is, right? It's mm-hmm. Peter. And his bastard that's the answer to his problems here. the uh, the answer to Catalan's problems is Peter and his dead bastard. Yeah,
1: and Liza. right All yes. of it a lot of it yeah does come back to Peter, but I guess a lot of it isn't the way you, if you think about it. Brandon and Hoster it all it's all a cycle, as she said, you know what yeah. happens when people get vengeance? Never ends. Yeah. And then Hoster mumbles again in his sleep, pleading for forgiveness as he remembers the blood. Catelyn is, for obvious reasons, disturbed. Blood, she thought. Must it all come back to blood? Father, who was this woman, and what did you do to her that needs so much forgiveness? Well, Hoster broke the house words. He put duty and honor before family, all at the expense of that last one, which should Uh, be the first one. It's true. You're not wrong. Speaking of family, (sighs) that night... Ketlin has nightmares about her children. When she wakes, she wonders if her father had a bastard on this Tansy, which again, it, it seems like seems weird to her. She's like seems uh seems out of
0: character. Edmure though, Catelyn thinks. She's like, that motherfucker's had so many bastards, that's stupid. He spurts one that out, out every day, she thinks. <laughs> yeah. And she she does start to get warmer, for what it's worth. She wonders if Tansy could be a nickname for someone, maybe Liza. Uh, like, Cat was a nickname for her. Especially because Hoster's mix them up now, as she's noticed. And finally, alone with her thoughts, she has the potential to work through one of the many mysteries. Clues keep popping up, but then she gets interrupted. But she does go through her memories, and she's like, Liza has many miscarriages two in the Eerie, three in King's Landing, but none in River Run. Da 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 Both Liza and Kat were married the same day to John Aaron, and Ned Stark, respectively. You know that, everyone. And Liza was so jazzed about her moonblood not coming. She was like, we're going to have heirs. They're going to be more brothers than cousins. We have this line. She was so happy. Liza. Once.
1: (laughs) Once upon a time, Liza Liza knew happiness. (sighs)
0: It's
1: pretty sad. It's pretty sad. Liza did get her period eventually, though. And Catelyn assumed that Liza's period was just late. Which does happen. That does happen. That is real. Uh, But now she's questioning if... Was Liza actually pregnant? Was it a miscarriage? Because next, Catelyn remembers giving her baby Rob to Liza to hold. Which ends with Liza sobbing. Very confusing, I think, encounter for Catelyn. And then she's like... Huh... Liza's marriage was arranged real fast, huh? John Aaron had no heir between, you know, his two wives not bearing kids and his nephew dying with Kat's ex fiance, then John's cousin dying at the Battle of the Bells. Liza was maybe the young wife that he needed that was proven fertile
0: then. I'm sorry, but it's like. It's so sad. It's devastatingly it sad that, like, she gets a chance to hold Rob and all she can do is cry. You know, it's awful. Uh, the language and the pain here is so prominent. This realization from Catalyn that she's like, oh, wow, this is my sister and her own, her, her entire life is ruined, right? Like, uh, There's this line uh, and, and it reminds me, this is from the passage above here, and it reminds me a lot of some of the stuff we actually see later in the book. She and her sister had been married on the same day and left in their father's care when their husbands had ridden off to rejoin Robert's rebellion. Afterward, when their moon blood did not come at the accustomed time, Liza had gushed happily of the sons she was certain they carried. Your son will be heir to Winterfell, and mine to the Erie. Oh, oh, they'll be the best of friends like your Ned and Lord Robert. There'll be more brothers than cousins, truly, I just know it. She was so happy. A lot of the pain in that language, a lot of what comes through now and that, feels kind of prominent in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, When Bran has a vision of his father at Winterfell in the godswood, right? Younger, with less gray in his hair, his head bowed. Let them grow up close as brothers, with only love between them, he prayed. And let my lady wife find it in her heart to forgive. You know, Catalina and Liza never had that chance either, that same Jon Snow kind of chance to to mend their families together, to protect each other, to stay safe. Imagine if they had had that chance.
1: Yeah, but after, you know, years and years of that hurt, of the miscarriage, and I think Dealing with the long term hurt that I think probably just calcified right for for Eliza, um, and I'll talk about that a bit more. Um, it makes sense, right? By the time she has a child, she's she's no longer invested in having those cousins grow up like brothers. She pulls away from the family and isolates entirely. And you know, I this I didn't realize this until you've read these aloud um, at the end. But first of all, yes, we see that it ends up being true, though of John and Ned's children. So we get a sort of hint, right? Uh with that with that echoing language of cousins, that they're in fact cousins and not brothers or half-brothers. Uh, but in that last line, and let my lady wife find it in her heart to forgive. <laughs> find that interesting with the way that Catelyn's story goes. Uh with will Lady Stoneheart be able to find it in her heart to forgive and I don't think so but <laughs> I mean one of one of Ned's prayers came true so perhaps the next one can we'll find out and you know yes though this pregnancy of Liza's slash the miscarriage was likely I think this one right because it already happened before the abortion of uh of the Peter span Pregnancy from Peter. Uh, this one was likely from John Aaron's, I guess, seed. And I think there's something to be said here of, you know, thinking more about those bastards, right? A- especially her sister's bastard, because I think, you know, Catelyn Hall Monitor Stark, who's yeah. just played by the rules of duty and honor all this time, and has frowned upon bastards because of, you know, her own husband forcing her to live with his societally perceived blight upon both of their duties and honors on both of them, right? And she has to, like, see that all the time, which Catelyn has greatly internalized all of this time. She's now reckoning with the other side of all of this as she begins to discard duty and honor because she's taken it as a given this whole time, right? That men will take their pleasure where they will, that they will have bastards, and that it is perhaps even the right of highborn men to have bastards, which is why the first conclusion that she comes to is that Hoster is the one who had a lover and a bastard. But We find out it's something else because now the question is, all right, so high-born men get to have bastards. They get to have their bastards be public. What about high-born women? Do they have a right to pleasure and desires as men do? Do they have a right to keep and have their bastards, whether at all to keep their children and especially in the public sphere. And what right do mothers have to keep their children? Again, we brought up Oberyn in a previous chapter. What right do they have over their own body? And when Catelyn later cannot even claim, you know, that it was her right to bargain for the lives of her daughters, She says it was my right, and Edmure says it wasn't. So what rights do mothers have?
0: Yeah, and as we'll get to as we keep moving forward, like, It's obvious that's a fucking excuse, right? Because it turns out it's not just mothers. It's just they're like, what if women didn't have rights? Anyways.
1: Yeah, so I think she's wrestling with that question when it (sighs) comes to Bastardy. She's like, I don't don't know. (laughs) And at long last, finally, after all these other mysteries that keep popping up in Catelyn's chapters that she never has the time to think about, Catelyn has solved one of them I'm so glad we got the time to sit. Now that she's in prison, she has time to go through this. She says to her sleeping father, "I know what you did a bunch of summers ago." Oh my god! Uh, for John Aaron to buy the strength of House Tully.
0: I don't know if you've seen those movies, but that is actually how it feels. Like every single I've one I've them. ever seen. I've seen like three of them. Whatever the first three were, but every one I've seen, it's be- that's literally been how it felt. Like I know what you did a bunch of summers ago. So great <laughs> recollection, Lyanna. Uh, Thank you. And and this quote, especially as her own daughter, Sansa, is about to be, you know, married, right? Mm-hmm. Wedded in holy matrimony. Oh yeah. She thinks this, which I'm sure Sansa is learning. She was no longer an innocent bride with a head full of dreams. She was a widow, a traitor, a grieving mother, and wise Wise in the ways of the world. This is like her entire being in comparison to motherless bastard damned, right? Yeah. Like for the very first time, Kat's titles, her rights, being a mother, they've all been stripped away. They don't fucking matter anymore. This is the closest she's ever been to being a bastard herself, right? Like her only power taken from her.
1: Not just power, but roles, right? She doesn't know what part to play anymore. And she's just swimming. Yeah, Treading. Treading. She is treading. She is treading. And as we discussed last chapter with Monero and and as our friends at Nauticast have said, there's something to be said here also of... This very, I think, lenient sentence, right, that Catelyn receives when juxtaposed with the punishment that Karstark gets. Though again, murder is different, as as Nauticast points out, when she loses all all of these freedoms and power, and, and also the deaths, right, versus the execution of the sex workers, slash um, also those women who slept with the Lannisters. But when we look at the picture of these brutalized bodies of women who slept with whoever they wanted alongside the stolen agency of Liza over her own body. And then finally also put all of that next to Catelyn's duty and her stolen freedom and loss of power. I think that rather than them being different from one another, they are all part of the same continuum of patriarchal control over women's bodies because it's a society in which all of them are property to be used by men for men's desires never for women's own wants or needs. And low-born women may be allowed some more sexual freedom. To some extent, they might be allowed to make a living off their sexuality, but only if it's with apparently the right men on the right side of the war or whatever, whoever like has power in that moment in the power structure. And even then... They are still subject to highborn men who may come and rape and assault them uh, whenever, however they like, with no consequences, as we see from Gregor Clegane or for the Boltons. And again, as Catelyn assumes, oh, it's normal for Hosser to have had a mistress. This is this is accepted. And it exists within the same continuum uh, as, as Catelyn and Liza, because lowborn women... Within this society exists so that men may take their pleasures of them and lowborn women suffering and the eventual policing of their sexuality again uh, when they lay with the wrong men. Their objectification exists so that the value and objectification of highborn women can be there at. The lowborn women's expense and the policing of highborn women's sexuality, their purity before marriage, for the highborn men to continue their lines. And Catelyn has lived through this narrative by doing her duty perfectly. She has never once considered it, considered it until now, when she's like, "Well, I don't have a fucking duty anymore." She's bought into the system of injustice for the little power that it has afforded her, that she's been able to navigate. And the, I mean, we see her use it right in the dungeon, and she's losing all of that now. But the violence exists on the other side of the spectrum, just differently, as Liza is forced to abort a child so that she may be more marriageable, so she can maintain the illusion of purity. And same as the objectification of low-born women um, who are discarded when they no longer fit those roles, Liza then is sold off. Uh, As coin, right, to John Aaron because of her proven fertility. The lenience that Catelyn experiences compared to the women we see in Jamie's chapter, that's not a flaw of the system. It's a feature. It is inherently baked in. That's the whole point. Yeah. (laughs) By which women are reduced to bodies, to live and die, to birth or to not birth, to use or discard all at men's
0: whims. I'm so glad. You said this because that is, it's frustrating, right? Like, as you go into Cersei's arc, as you enter a feast for crows, a um, <laughs> oh, fuck, a little levity for the moment. No, it, it's frustrating, right? Because, like, it becomes about, like, Tywin and the woman he was found with and and Cersei yes. hiding that. And that's what this feels like for Catalan But the woman that Hoster is hiding is her own sister, Right? Like her own sister that she could have sworn to you just yesterday lived the exact same that she did. But maybe, just maybe, she didn't live the same as Catalan lived. Maybe. And, yeah, it's so hard because we get all these so beautifully sad lines about Liza and what she gave up and her innocence and who the girl she was. But, that's why they were loveless, right? Un- unwillingly mm-hmm. loveless. Liza needed warmth. As Catalan says, She she's not like that. She needs warmth. She needs to be able to be grown and she needs, you know, just like when you grow a chia pet, like one that your best friend Eliana gives you, um, you got to germinate that shit. You need some warmth.
1: Yeah. And I mean, you were able to try again in life, right? You were able to start over with a new Chia pet. Liza didn't get to do that. You know, I, mm-hmm. I know that you had a Chia pet before in your life that, that went wrong, and mm-hmm. Liza true. doesn't
0: get to do that. <laughs> Not everyone gets that kind of love in their life, though, of somebody that like, doesn't care if you like, fuck someone and have to abort child because your father makes you and it's all this trauma like not everybody gets lucky and has a person that would support you through all that aka you like liza didn't have that cat for whatever reason obviously she had her own issues of birthing out northern fucking heirs but like cat said you know we were sisters we were everything to each other but for some reason trauma in life pulled them apart and cat was unable to fulfill Her half of that sisterly duty, and that guilt shows, right? And Uh the next morning, it shows so much that Kat decides to write Liza a letter. She writes about the alleged death of her own sons, and then about their father's upcoming death and how it's time for him to go. And she uses a lot of fighting metaphors, right? She says, it's time for father to lay down his sword and shield. It's time for him to rest. Yet he fights on grimly, will not yield. Is for your sake, I think. He needs your forgiveness. She says it's dangerous, but Liza should try to make the trip or at least write him so he can die in peace. You know, we we talked about what Amy Allison brought into this up top. Kat doesn't necessarily offer him forgiveness, right, in this passage, because it's not her forgiveness. This is not her Uh war to fight. All she can do is provide swords. The thing her sister never did. But Damn. <laughs> well, look, I'm just saying it's true. Maybe that's why she didn't. But but she won't get a reply. Not in this amount of time. It, it's so sad. You know, I think about my father. My father comes from a family of eight children, nine children. Uh, one passed away early on, so it became eight. But he comes from a family of eight children. And my grandmother passed away. And within two years... My grandfather passed away because that's how it goes. They say they, they they say that usually, you know, the other can't live while the other survives. But two years later, their entire family, eight siblings, just like turned on each other and fucking tore each other up and chose sides and money and all this shit. But like watching that rift, like those were the people you were supposed to rely on. All of them were supposed Mm -hmm. to be there for you during these things, like when your children die, or when everything doesn't go to plan, when things that you thought never could or would or should happen, and then all three of you, all three of you, Edmure, Liza, Catelyn, all three of you were supposed to realize the person you shouldn't have trusted and said you wouldn't trust, and you knew your father wasn't great, you trusted him, you believed him, and. his world—he betrayed you guys. It betrayed all of you. Yeah. And
1: I almost wondered, like, did Liza pull away because Kat didn't see her? You know, you're talking about, we were talking about chia
0: pets. But How do you Katlin, not realize uh, your chia pet hasn't germinated? You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, like, is it like, did Liza resent that Catlin didn't realize that she had a mer- miscarriage, right? And in that moment... Um, with Even though it was subconscious, right? Pulls away more. And and th- again, she gets more and more isolated in that tower. And I don't know that this letter, right? I First of all, I don't know that it's fair for Kat to ask this, but I understand her wanting to try. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, wow, she's asking a big inconvenience of Liza here in this letter. And she's asking something, I think, very, very painful of Liza to do. And I will say, I don't know that Liza was capable. I don't know if Liza giving Hoster forgiveness, whether that would have been closure for her in like a good way. I mean, it could or it couldn't have, like everyone's different. I don't know how it would have been for Liza. We don't get enough of her, I think, perspective to know, but obviously probably would have for Hoster, assuming that he knew that it was happening. But I I guess, I I kind of wonder, would Liza, knowing that her father at least regrets his actions and is sorry for what happened, be at least somewhat helpful for her? Because I think that's, that's way more than many people get from their parents. Like, (laughs) <laughs> just wanting to know, just want wanting to know that they know that they fucked up, right? Or them to say sorry. That that's, in my opinion, that's pretty big. It sounds small, but that is that's huge. And I get what Kat is going for here, but it is very much. I think still, like again, I don't know that she gets to ask of Liza um, that interfamily guilting still as she asks Liza to sacrifice her safety on the on all of these different Mm -hmm. roads, right, to give peace to the father that has harmed her so deeply and so, I mean,
0: lastingly. It's really rough, right? Like, it does feel, it feels like Kat thinks she has a childhood, right, that was similar to Liza's, but Liza's reveal here to all of us in this moment here and, of course, how it comes round circle in the end, like, it's very obvious Liza's, adaptation of their childhood is very different so to speak of what Catalan's was there is kind of like you know there's that parable of in a game of thrones cat called for peace right which I agreed with you agreed with at the time and I agreed with that her call for peace was very sensible that she said many people will fucking die from the northern faction I'm saying it because I have to what if we chose peace y'all What if we gave peace a chance, Joni Mitchell style? And everyone was like, no, there's no fucking way we could ever give peace a chance. It feels almost akin to that, right? That she's just like, Uh, Liza, give peace a chance. You know, give our father a chance. But what? What chance is that? A family peace? Like, he's going to die any moment, never having given her anything she asked for.
1: I mean, it's definitely like a long shot on Catlin's part, but she's like I got to take it, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. That's a that's a great point. That's a great comparison to a, a book one. And Yeah, you know, I I like what you're saying about Catlin thought they had a similar childhood and clearly they did not <laughs> and seeing how those I mean, seeing how those paths diverge, right? Because there was so much similar and They were both considered beautiful, right? They were both happy, daughters of this great man until, you know, one made the mistake, right, of, uh, and how it all falls apart because clearly, as we can see, yeah, Liza was proven fertile, clearly Catelyn was fertile, and the moon tea has such a long-lasting effect on Liza. I mean, first of all, a miscarriage is deeply psychologically damaging to a lot of people, right? Uh, I've I've heard stories of how difficult it is for people who uh, struggle to conceive and struggle to carry a child to term. And that's that's got to be very painful for Liza when we see how much she's gone through. And then the fact that if Catelyn was so fertile and Liza proved fertile that first time, granted, of course, I, I assume, I think John was mostly shooting blanks. Right. John Aaron is mostly shooting blanks, so that can't really be on her that much. But also, if, if those were working out, like, I would assume it's the result of the moon tea, because it seems like the way George thinks of genetics in some ways is like, with all things the same, he doesn't have like a super, I think, he doesn't have a super complex, I think, uh, world building around genetics most of the time. So I'm just assuming both of them were that fertile and that this moon tea is part of what caused and likely what Liza thinks of as having caused all of these issues for her in terms of the happiness she wasn't able to gain as Kat was. She wasn't able to do
0: her duty as a wife uh, and as a lady of the house. And when you put it into perspective that Kat's like chasing that high on like a, on a very basic level of like, I did my job and I did kind of fall in love with the guy. And Liza's chasing that high on a very like, I couldn't even feel my own feelings because my father forced me to abort my child. There's definitely two very different coming of age stories going on there, right? And and as we've mentioned, that desperation does come back when it comes to Liza and Littlefinger and it makes a lot more sense now on reread of why Liza's motivations were what they were. You know, I feel a lot of sorrow and a lot of sympathy for Liza, especially after some of the prose and some of the pain get, that, that gets put forward in this chapter. It's horrible. It's terrible. Yeah. There's a lot of negativity towards Liza when we get to the Veil vale and Sansa's chapters, right? And we really explore her on that kind of more feral, more ground level. And it's painful, honestly, to relive because it's like, The reason she clutches Robin so close to her, Robert Aaron so close to her chest, little sweet Robin, Uh, the reason she calls him like that, you see it. These are the chapters Mm. that form that. This is what forms sweet Robin, Lord Robert Aaron, in all of his grace and honor. This is what forms him. Like, of course, Liza kept him close to her bosom and never let him move.
1: It's a continuation of uh, what Hoster did to her.
0: The infantilization, yeah.
1: Yeah, the infantilization, removing agency over, and his freedom, agency over his body and his life. Yes. Uh, that's what she thinks love, I guess, is supposed to look like. I don't know if that's the case. It, But that's, I don't know if she thinks that's love, but like, that's all that's been modeled for her when mm-hmm. it comes to parenting. So, yeah. and also that's now she she's decided, fuck the rest of my family. She's like, this is my only family now. Yeah. And Peter,
0: so. This high that's castle it. on a cloud. This ice castle that no one can reach her within. There is yeah. a castle on a cloud. She likes to go there
1: every day. It is very sad. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we have a different song reference now. As, uh, as Catelyn seals the letter, Catelyn hums Jojo's Too Little Too Late, wondering how long her father long has. Long. She's like, this is gonna work, right? <laughs> and then she goes to pray to the father, the crone, and the
0: mother over in the set. You know, it's a good thing she didn't try to tell him just to get out, leave right now.
1: Oh, wow, Uh,
0: he couldn't. I know, that's why I said it's a good thing that she didn't. So (laughs) the next day, Kat reads next to Hoster, and then she starts to hear a ruckus occur. She thinks it could be Robin Reiger, and she goes to investigate at the roof, and she's like, loophole! She looks out at the beautiful river everywhere and feels relief. She watches men pour in as it's Edmir and two troops returning. He takes about two hours before he comes to see her. People are jazzed, ravens are flying, but Kat is waiting, and she thinks the waiting is hard. Oh, there you go. George knows everyone.
1: Yeah, so so George knows. He's known this whole time that uh, waiting is hard. It is. Ugh. <coughs> uh, uh. I'm fine. So, earlier this chapter, right, we have similar language of cat waiting for Emyr to return, and when he gets back, he also makes her wait a little longer, because clearly he's a little miffed, uh, versus, you know, Hoster immediately asking her uh, when he'd return home, even though he was sometimes late from, from war, and say, did you watch for me, little cat?" Um, as opposed to her brother, right, who's so full of imperfection, he could never live up to this hero that she's put on a pedestal in her mind, Hoster, who she's finding out, like, oh. Uh, now she has to tear down that image uh, as as Ednard is about to claim the seat of House Tully. And all that waiting, it repeats for her brother, right? Earlier in the books, we find that she's waiting for Rob, and she ties that to the waiting for her father, for her fiancé at the time, mm-hmm. and also when she was waiting for Ned... Uh, As she's watching The Whispering Wood. But as it ties everything together, the sins of all of their fathers, uh, it also comes with the hell of Robert's Rebellion. Not just tying together this story. And besides the waiting for men to return from fighting, she's also returned to her girlhood um, in a sort of forced infantilization as, again, her freedom is taken from her. In in great juxtaposition, right, to what she's done the entirety of the past two books, where she's gone all the way from the north, all the way to King's Landing, all the way to Riverrun, then to the Vale, then... Then back to the Riverlands, and then all the way to Storm's End, and then back to Riverrun. So, I mean, she she spent the last few books with a lot of freedom and power, uh, traversing the nation, making decisions. And I would say I, I would say she made decisions and had power, but really, like she didn't, because to some extent, she was dealing with weirdos like Stannis and Renly.
0: <laughs> well, it's as much as we're like allowed to make decisions, right? Like we're only allowed to use so many XP. To fulfill those decisions quickly well, as woman. It's just what's allowed. I'm just telling yeah, you the secrets. You know what I mean? You this run out just... and
1: becomes mother's madness.
0: Yeah, yeah. If you if you get past a certain point of like strength or defense, you fuck it up, you fuck up the entire point system, and you become mother's madness. That's what I'm hearing. That's just <sighs> You know, Edmir's return is not exactly Great, great. Like, it's not a... He's not in his best state. He's kind of beat up. He was successful in throwing back the Lannisters, but Stannis, you know him, he lost his battle. And Catalan's like, that's fine. He's creepy. He's like the shadow baby that threatens kids. You know, real creepy. Edmure explains, no, 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 there's a big picture though. Highgarden declared for the Lannisters, and so did Dorne. You know, those last people who had their entire family murder trained by the Lannisters because they didn't <laughs> agree with them. Um, and then, to top that all off, Edmure adds, you let the kink slayer go. Edmure tells her, you had no right. Catelyn's like, I had a mother's right. But Edmure responds again, saying, no right. And he says, this is far above your pay grade. Ah, this conversation is frustrating because I am very pro Edmir, I always want to support my baby boy. But here he's pissing me off. You know, I have to talk about the way he is literally drawn. Literally, he says, uh, George says of Edmir. he's thin and drawn with pale cheeks, unkempt beard, two bright eyes. I love that. His body's ghastly, but his eyes, they're still feral and alive with energy, right? You know, from like the fighting and the bloodlust. Kind of tells you where Edmir's mind is here that he's war Edmir. He's not soft boy Edmir. He's not little brother Edmir mm-hmm. disrespecting his big sister. He likely doesn't even have that same morality scale. He's a different man right now. Right now, he's returning from murder only mode. Uh, and in that same note, it kind of shows why he repeats. You had no right, not only as Catelyn, but as a mother. He says no right, uh, reiterated twice for her to hear. You had no right. You have no right. It comes kind of full circle that right now he's trying to deny her that, but yet, as we get to Edmure's character in River Run, right later on in Feast and in Dance, he's broken down to nothing himself. He knows he has nothing to barter with for River Run, and he must let them take the castle and try not to murder his men the best he can, right? Like, I wonder if right now in A Dance with Dragons, Edmure thinks of Kat. I wonder if he understands what a mother's rights is now, right? What a mother's desperation Mm. means because right now he's gotta be feeling lonely.
1: And I think he does, right? To some extent.
0: Maybe, I guess he doesn't think it's
1: madness. But it's- Jamie puts the same, a similar uh, calculus in front of him, right? He's like, he asks for, you know, Jamie says, give me what I want, or I'm going to take your baby and trebuchet him over the walls. Uh, so, again. I I, th- I think that's a great point. is very much put in that same position. But I also understand his perspective here, right? He's like, why did we hold out? Why did we fight so long if it was all going to go to shit because of this decision anyway? Feels like... You got stabbed in the back after uh, fighting hard, but also I think you know, Catelyn's thing made sense too. It's so hard. It's so hard. Everyone has their own motivations, and they have all these things that they want, and life's terrible and unfair. I didn't
0: think this way in Ellen Enchanted*. But now I do in here. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. You know, there's a lot that comes of this, though. Like Catelyn and him start to go at it about Brienne of all people. She's like, "It's fine." Brienne's going to protect Jamie, and Edmure's like, I don't know, she's kind of a woman, you know, she has that kind of failure going on for her, and Kat's like, no, 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 this will bring Arya and Sansa back to us, and Edmure's like, Cersei won't agree to that, which, mad respect that Edmure's over here simping, and he's like, <laughs> Cersei's plugged in, girl, like, she's the CEO right? Boss-ass bitch. And Kat's like, she's not in charge. Tyrion's in charge, you stupid motherfucker. And Edmure's like, Jamie has shit for honor, first of all. And Tyrion is allegedly dying with an axe to his head. On uh, reread, shit. I love this so much because you know what it represents? The Stark girls at the very end of the book, uh-huh. right? Because Sansa has shit for honor, she murdered Joffrey with a spell, right? That's the rumor. Yeah. And Arya, she's dying with an axe to the head by the end of the book, remember? Because we all got tricked that one time during that one chapter.
1: <laughs> that one chapter, indeed, indeed. I mean, Thankfully, it is that gets literal. resolved quickly. Yeah. yeah. I but mean, no, that's so, that's such a great point. And each of them, it's the elder and the younger.
0: It is. It is. And this isn't without <sighs> emotions, problem. right? Like, Not only is there that parallel of like both siblings being related to Jamie and Tyrion, but also this is the moment where Catelyn realizes they're fucked. He just gave away that Jamie escaped, quote unquote, not was released, not that Catelyn was bad and evil and released him, but that Jamie escaped. And as she thinks of her girls, unwanted, unbidden. Tears Tears fill her eyes Oh Mother I'm so sorry Mom Yeah
1: Yeah it's so sad again within that same continuum sad. of They had I guess no value
0: Yeah they weren't valuable enough but It feels like no one's safe here anymore which is like such a wow. destruction and betrayal from childhood that River Run is no longer safe to the Tollies, right? River Run yeah. is Everything. And you even have next chapter with Arya's chapter, right? Before we had Jamie won. The next chapter after Catelyn one is Arya one. She nodded. We'll be safe once we reach River Run. We will? Why? Because River Run's my grandfather's castle, and my brother Rob will be there, she wanted to say. She bit her lip and rolled up the map. No one's safe there. Arya you know, doesn't know that yet, but no one's safe there. Cat knows. The Tully's know yeah. no one's safe in River Run. Hoster's not even safe here. This is where he dies. Good for him.
1: <laughs> he gets he gets out of the rest of it. The rest of the pain. Uh, except for that one huge regret hanging over his life. Anyway. um, But, you know, I was going to say this as a joke, but I actually do mean it. I mean this very seriously. You know, Cat's life... River Run was safe for her when she and everyone else they were they were going with the flow of life, of the rivers, of what she was supposed to do. She never fought back. But now now the tides have turned against them and River Run is unsafe. And I I honestly actually mean that. I think this might be real within the metaphors of the book. That's it. You might be right. Well, Catelyn wonders if the gods could commit this cruel irony to her, as Chloe wonders um, why the gods are cruel to her in this moment, too. Uh, among all of the other things that Catelyn has gone through, there's just a lot that she's dealing with. And Edmure, you know, he just doesn't give a fuck about her problems right now and says, I'm going to get him back. I'm going to get Jamie Lannister L- back. I have sent out a lot of borbs, all right, especially <laughs> to Lord Bolton. Who definitely has her back, uh, saying that, you know what, Jamie escaped. And Catelyn says, no, stop, stop, you're spoiling it, you're spoiling everything. And if the world thinks that Jamie escaped, then there is no leverage to get Arya and Sansa back as part of a hostage exchange, because then he's not a hostage exchange anymore. And she also thinks that Edmure is a fool for doing this, and Edmure's like, it's not gonna come to that, right? We're gonna retrieve Jamie. And this is like the most intense sibling fight ever. And I'm just like, maybe being an only child is good. I'm mildly thankful. Amen, and amen. <laughs> <laughs> right, this whole chapter, I'm like, being an only child is good? Actually? Anyway, Kat says that Edmure has only ensured that Catelyn will never see her girls again because no one was supposed to hunt for Brienne
0: and Jamie. It's true. I mean, she didn't exactly get time to lay out more than like maybe three minutes of rules with them. Right before letting him free, but like earlier, she was like, Should I be concerned about like Edmir telling Ruth what's going on? And I'm here to tell you, Yes. Yes. Yeah. She should be concerned. This is the juice that gets the red wedding going. And Mm -hmm. I mean, it's totally like a corporate thing for Edmir that he's in a cover up my mistakes mode. You know what I mean? Like, he told Ruth. He told so many people he's out here like sending birds and he's like yeah 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 we did this we're covering up Catalin's crime we did this It's her crime you know like Roos is waiting for a chance to sparkle and shine and whisper and profit and you just handed it to him Edmir that's not good I love Edmir and I love a lot of things he does but that one he should have held back a little yeah. and you know the irony of it all is that Rob and Brynden show back up and they're like well Edmure, you need to have a better story than that. What are you saying? And they're like, you should have had a way better story and announced it already and done the PR for us. Uh, and that's not fair either, though. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, It's unfair that I'm mad at him right now because right now he's trying to just live up to like being a semi-lord, but it's also unfair for that. You
1: know, it's interesting that you... Use this term of like cover up our mistakes as what Edmure is do- doing by sending out all these birds and trying to reverse or cover cover up mm-hmm. Catelyn's treason because that's what this chapter is about. It's mm-hmm. about Hoster covering up Liza's pregnancy mm-hmm. that one time. Edmure is in a way, I mean, he's following the model that his father has set for them. Yeah, and Catelyn's like, I have had enough emotional strain for the day and kicks Edmure out of her father's room aka her prison You know she's got a lot of power still a little bit for, for a prisoner aka also what's going to be Edmure's castle in a bit she's just like leave me to father in my grief I have no more to say to you go go all she wanted to do was lie down to close her eyes and sleep and pray new dreams would come
0: Ah! And that's the end
1: of Catelyn 1, A Storm of Swords.
0: <laughs> happy. Think happy thoughts. Think happy
1: thoughts. It yeah. Hurts. It hurts. It, it It really does. And it ties back to other hurtful moments in these books. Oh, good. That very, very last line. That very last line of this Catelyn chapter of, you know, lie down, close her eyes and sleep and pray no dreams would come. Is very similar language to a Game of Thrones. Danny nine, when she you know finds out that uh, Drogo is not is not coming back. Inside the tent, Danny found a cushion, soft silk, stuffed with feathers. She clutched it to her breast as she walked back out to Drogo to her sun and stars. If I look back, I am lost. It hurt even to walk, and she wanted to sleep, to sleep, and not to dream. So. <laughs> This Daenerys line is quite, I think, obviously a reference to Hamlet, but the line in Hamlet is to sleep to sleep, perchance to dream, and that's uh, the famous monologue in which he is contemplating suicide, and though the language in that monologue doesn't mirror Catelyn's exactly, it, it's much more akin to Daenerys's uh, the the fact that both of these chapters are tied together in terms of language I think shows that this death drive is starting to surface within her chapter and of course becomes this string pulling the rest of the trajectory of her story in this book.
0: I love that. Uh, I, I really think that's a great connection especially because like both of these women feel like they're so punished for yeah. being unable to perform to the expectations set upon them. And when I say expectations, I mean, these are just like fucking made up rules, right? They're like, you should jumping jack every five seconds after you have sex, so you can keep the baby inside you or whatever they're thinking. You know what I mean? Like just stupid bullshit. And mm-hmm. it's so hard to read it. And Catelyn getting over Ned is Daenerys having to kill her own lover, you know? Mm-hmm. Burn your own fucking lover down. It's awful. And yeah, that seems traumatic.
1: She's like, what, 13? Yeah. No, she's 14 now. It's She's fine. 14.
0: It's fine. It's fine.
1: She's younger than Liza was, I think, right? Or yeah. A little lot younger yes. than Liza At during least three uh, years, all like, this two, going three down.
0: Years. Liza was 16, 17, I think. Kat yeah. was 18, 19 when she married Ned. Everyth- everything's going great for everyone our protagonists are sad you know speaking of our sad protagonists uh, I haven't been critical of Cat this chapter yet as far as I could because honestly it's fucking sad but there is a certain aspect of this chapter that makes me think of Tywin hmm. in a completely different sense right like Tywin pushes Tyrion away at the end of a Game of Thrones, because he's given up on Jamie. right? He's like, go back to King's mm. Landing. You don't care about your brother. And Tywin sees Jamie kind of as his last chance at good in his line, his last chance to have good in the Lannister line. He's like, this is my chance for survivalism against my dad, against Tytos and his shitty line, his fool's blood. And in a very different way, Catelyn here is also giving up on her family, right? Like, she's giving up on Rob, on Edmure, uh as well, in order to preserve what she has left good in her family. The one thing that she's like, I could save this, which is her girls. But in uh-huh. both of Tywin and Catelyn's blind spots, they're very different blind spots. They both lose.
1: Hmm. They do both lose. That's a great point. And it both happens within this book, so I think that's that's a really strong what you're pointing out here of yeah. you know what they fail to see. And Catlin's is born out of like this desperation, grief. Tywin's mm-hmm. out of ambition. But as you as you pointed out, right, it's also born from I think some of the hurts that he suffered from his parents feeling yes. like he was abandoned and left to the wolves, but not the Starks. I I meant The Blackfires more of.
0: The Blackfires
1: (laughs) When his father was like, I'm going to stay at home and send all of you to war Mm -hmm. while I have sex.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty shitty. And, you know, the one thing as we close this chapter that, totally off-topic of shitty parentage and shitty bullshit and trauma, (laughs) well, maybe not trauma, is there was this line when Edmure comes back, right? And he's telling Cat what he's done. And she says, Ravens to whom? How many? And Edmure says, Three? So the message will be certain to reach Lord Bolton. By river or road, the way from River Run to King's Landing must needs take them close by Heron Hall. So while rereading this, I realized, you know, two, two chapters ago, we had Chet, write The prologues hmm Three horns? What does the third horn mean? Others. What does the third raven mean? Three ravens, three horns. It means fire whites, not ice whites. <laughs> well, soon enough, Aliana, soon enough, as we get to the end of A Storm of Swords eventually. Soon enough. Indeed. Indeed. Well, I think we could go on
1: and on about Catelyn 1. For ages, but... weeks,
0: months even.
1: Ah. Uh, we're too- there's, there's a lot. I think there's a lot to process emotionally right now, so we're going to
0: stop. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We must stop. Thank you so much for listening, though, to all of Catelyn's trauma, Liza's trauma, our trauma, our trauma. Yeah. The Chia Pet trauma. The Chia Pets yeah. of Girls Gone Cannon. Hey, if you have thoughts on this episode, though, real talk, you can send them over to us on social media at Girls Gone Cannon, C A N O N, on Twitter, or over at email. You can send us an email about your thoughts on the episode at Girls Gone Cannon, Canon. C A N O N, at gmail.com.
1: Yes. And if you would like to get on. The very sad Catelyn train as we speed on down to her death. You can keep up by subscribing to us on Podbean, the fuck's right Google with Play, you? <laughs> <laughs> so much, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, Overcast, I don't know if I made that up, Pandora, Amazon Podcasts, I don't know if I said that twice, um, I Heart Radio. Audible, maybe. I might have made that one up for us, too. Who knows? It's true.
0: I lost it. You did great. I'm in my grief. I'm I'm having a mother's madness. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. Listen, if those aren't enough places for you to subscribe to us on, and I hope that right now as you listen, you are hitting subscribe on each of those and like on all those little links to the podcast. But if you want something more personable, you have to go to patreon.com slash girls gone canon you get your own rss feed and if you are a stranger tier a five dollar five usd patron and above you will get your own private rss feed filled with special patreon episodes everything you can imagine up to and including ella enchanted eliana enchanted oh okay
1: And, of course, patrons in the Thunder Tier and above, $10 and above, get access to the Discord, where there are hijinks and fun (laughs) and sing-alongs.
0: Yes. It's it's a good time. The hijinks are honestly worth it, so please come hang out with us over at Patreon. We're having fun, and as you heard from both Amy and Mary earlier, we have some of the best patrons with some of the best ideas. So check it out at Patreon.com. Slash Girls Gone Cannon. And as always, I have been one of your hosts. What's your Chloe? Th- oh my god. <laughs> and I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. We'll see you next week with Catalan 2 in a Storm of Swords. A Sauce! Have you named your Chia Pet?
1: Cha 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 A Sauce. You named your chia pet Asos about two minutes ago. Yeah, okay, that's a that's a choice.
0: Goodbye, right.
1: everyone.